Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our fourth episode on Laxdaler Saga, the saga of the people of Laxadal, or the saga of the people of the Salmon River Valley. Ooh. Ooh. Andy, you sound a little tired. How are you holding up so far? I'm not tired, and I, you know, honestly, I, I can't complain. Life is good. Uh, mm-hmm. I keep busy uh, all year round. I, I'm still, you know, I'm st- I still have a job here at the university in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, kids are out of school and uh, we're settling into some summer routines. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, because, John, because we like keeping things crazy, uh, we just added a new pup to the family. Oh, yeah. Did you, mm-hmm. uh, did you ever get around to naming her or is she still just the dog? No, no, we did. It, it took a couple days for my wife to decide on the name, uh, but she decided on Daphne. And she is a, she's a very sweet little Aussie doodle. Oh, that's nice. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a very fancy word for a mutt, isn't it? Well, it's a designer mutt, John. It's a designer <laughs> mutt. But, yeah. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, and she's, uh, she's doing great, and she's getting along well with Grim and Izzy and the whole family. And we Excellent. couldn't be happier to have her. Yay. And she's adorable. She is. She's sweet. She's got that sweet little, like, uh, a sad face. She occasionally has an excited face, but it's it's that, that sad dog face that uh, some dogs have. Isn't that what you find appealing about me? <laughs> no, it's just your charm. It's oh, not your looks for me. For me, I don't see your looks. All I get is your charm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. It's gotten me this far in life. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, very good. I, I actually originally meant how are you doing with holding up with covering Lockstall's Saga, but that's all good to know. Well, I mean... That's fine, too. I, I've, I've been reading it. <laughs> Excellent. Not informative, mm-hmm. but reassuring. Yeah, well, I, I, I would tell you exactly how I am, uh, if you want to know. I'm champing at the bit here because oh. after three episodes of establishing the ancestry of the region's settlers and mm-hmm. the backgrounds of the saga's players, we are finally ready to enter the saga's main storyline now. Mm. We have finished what Catherine Hume calls the pre-beginning of the saga. And now it's time for the the pre-beginning. And now it's time for the beginning, beginning of the saga, where we're going to start seeing all these different threads coming together. It's pretty exciting. That's a big promise. It's a big saga. No, it's true. Uh, This is the point. I mean, we talked in the first episode about the scholarly view that the first section of this saga really isn't an integral part of the story. Uh, We also said that we didn't agree with that. So, Uh, yeah, but we're saga nerds. Who cares what we think? Well, I care. I, I care a lot. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Uh, no, this episode and the next few after this is where we finally get to start justifying our views on the saga as a coherent whole. Uh-huh. Oh, good. Yes. An episode built around the scholarly justification. Not exactly yes. uh, selling the merchandise there, but that's what we do here. Nope. Double knot your shoelaces, folks, or we'll blow your socks right through them. Is that better? <laughs> uh, it's better. It's not great, but it's better. Okay. Well, before we can go about launching anyone's socks, we need to explain how we got to this point. Last time on Saga Thing. A local chieftain's brother named Hall tries throwing his weight around with his fishing partner. But Thorolf, his impecunious partner, shows more skill with an axe than a net. And Hall turns out to be a red herring when Thorolf chops off his arrogant head. Thorolf flees, but the forces of Hall's brother Ingald are on the hunt. And he's forced to seek shelter at the farm of his cousin Vigdis. Vigdis proves blood is thicker than water by sheltering her fugitive cousin. But when Ingjald the chieftain speaks softly and brandishes his big stick, well, Vigdis' husband, Thord Godi, betrays Thorolf. Quick thinking by Vigdis and her husband's right-hand man, Asgaut, saves Thorolf and spirits him away to safety. But no amount of wit and reason can save this doomed marriage. Once Vigdis' boots start a-walkin', Vigdis' relatives come a-knockin' for a, co- <laughs> for a costly <laughs> divorce settlement. 
Ford escapes his erstwhile in-laws by making a deal to become foster father to Olaf Peacock, son of Hoskul Dalakolsen and Melkorka, the Irish princess turned slave. But one crisis follows another, as the irascible farmer Hrop of Hropstather dies and becomes a revenant, killing his own son and possibly causing the deaths of over a dozen other people in a shipwreck witnessed by a human-eyed seal. I do enjoy the seal. I know you do. Oskar Dalakosen's life is further complicated by the arrival of Hurt Hergelson, his Norwegian half-brother from the same mother. Hurt's come for his half of Mom's estate, but Big Brother Hoskold keeps a tight fist on the family's purse strings. After several years of putting up with Hoskold's nonsense, Hurt finally takes his inheritance in the form of half Hoskold's herd and several of his men. Hoskold's wife Joran gives him the smart tip to make up with his brother, and the two men settle down to raise their families. But Hoskold's son Olaf is growing restless and longing for a voyage to prove himself as his mother's son. How will he fare in this episode of Luxtyler Saga, chapters 20 to 24? So, one of the things we talked about last time is how many stock motifs this saga has been working in. Mm-hmm, yeah. Irish princesses, women shaming men for attempting dishonorable bribes, mm-hmm. supernatural seals, haunted farms. Of course. Uh, Gothar searching farms for hidden outlaws. You name yes, it, it's, it's here. It's, it's, it's a list. It's a list. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, but it's how this saga uses them that shows its quality. Mm. Uh, Rafael Garcia Perez points out that sagas are, for the most part, pretty loyal to a certain set of plot and character types. But in Laxdala Saga, he says, contrary to expectations, the saga writer displays a literary virtuosity in innovating within those confines, and shows that it's possible to have a highly individual imprint on the saga, despite the restrictions imposed by the general conventions of the genre. Ah, so we are looking for signs of literary virtuosity. Right, we're looking for innovation within the usual framework of sagas. Mm. And I think we'll find it in this episode. And that's, well... I think that's what readers often respond to in this story. It's Mm -hmm. not doing anything other sagas don't do necessarily. It just does it all really well. And with with some spin on the ball, if you like a a baseball metaphor. Uh, (laughs) Sure, (laughs) we're allowed. Uh, In this episode, we're going to follow another trope as it unfolds. The Irish princess motif of Northern European literature. Mm -hmm. And the slightly more saga-y motif of the young man who sets out from Iceland to make his name through adventure. Well, I mean, that one's pretty universal. Yes, yeah, yes, it is. And I'm glad you pointed that out, because we're going to be talking about how this saga has some pretty interesting analogs in other stories. Okay. Are uh, you ready to get this big wheel a-turning? Sure thing, Proud Mary. <laughs> Part 11. Olaf's Journey Out. So our central figure for this set of chapters is Olaf Peacock, the son of Hoskul Dalakolsen and Melkorka Murkjartan's daughter. Uh-huh. Uh, we yeah. first met him a couple episodes back, and he's been slowly growing up while we've been focusing on the local politics of the region. Now, Olaf is a guy with a complicated backstory, and it's pretty typical of the sagas that we've been given the backstory first. Mm. Everything that's been going on is, to one degree or another, setting up Olaf's part of the story. And by extension, the generation after him, if you know your sagas. Yeah, hang on. We just got to Olaf. Let's not Mm -hmm. go to Plaid and miss him completely. The the (laughs) point is that those politics have been unfolding over the course of decades. True. Um, It's easy to miss all the times when a few years pass here or there in a saga story, but they definitely add up. I mean, nearly 20 years have passed since Hoskold first purchased Melkorka at the King's Gathering at Bren Isle. Mm -hmm. Now, Hrut is approaching middle age already. Hoskold is a senior citizen. 
and his children, well, they've all become full-grown men and women. Right, which means that when we finally move over to Olaf's part of the story, he's not a child anymore. He's, he's 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been growing up at the farm of his foster father, Thord Godi. He's been visiting his mother, Melkorka, on the regular. And he's been gaining reputation as a handsome and capable young man. And a snappy dresser, which yes. is where the, the old peacock nickname comes from. Yep. And uh, it's actually his father, Hoskold, who calls him that, uh, which yeah. doesn't suggest that the relations between father and son are entirely friendly. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, Peacock suggests maybe some complex feelings about his son. I think uh, Hoskold thinks of himself as a self-made man, so he might sneer a bit at an illegitimate son who uh, dresses like the young princeling, um, Mm -hmm. living on the wealthy man's property and taking full advantage of that wealth. But on the other hand, creating a reputation through appearance, it's really part of Hoskold's M.O., isn't it? We know he rebuilt his entire farm to make a statement about how important he is earlier in the saga. And he's certainly not shy about his wealth and power and throwing that around. Sure. So having his sons looking their best also feeds into that reputation loop that Hoskold seems to put so much stock in. Sure. No, that's a good point. Uh, but we don't have to review all of that. Uh, what I was getting at is that Hoskold and Olaf don't see eye to eye about a few things. Mm. Uh, most importantly, Hoskold hasn't been treating Melkorka particularly well. And yeah. Olaf knows it. Yeah, well, uh, his mother lets him know about it because she's not happy with Hoskold and Joran's coldness toward her. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't exactly been taking care of her or treating her so well since she was put out uh, to pasture, as it were, at Melkor's father. Right. So the situation here is that Hoskold's other sons have now been very well placed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorlik, uh, their older son, is married to Gjothlug Arnbjörn's daughter, uh, who comes from a well-respected family that were among the earliest settlers in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Her grandfather was Sletebjorn Hrorsen, uh, and it's not covered in the saga, but that's a name that audiences would know from their history. Uh, and on their, her mother's side, she's actually a great-great-granddaughter of Bjorn Ironsides, the famous Viking son of Ragnar Lothbrok. Mm. So what you're saying there is she's got a significant pedigree. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's married into a very important family. Mm-hmm. And for Hoskold, that's a really important thing. Remember how excited he was when he learned that Melkorka was the daughter of a king. And that his illegitimate son was therefore of royal blood. So, yeah, it's true. He's a man mm-hmm. who likes to tie his family to the good and the great. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a subtle thread of the story, but it gives us a clue about Hoskold. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but Hoskold's father, Cole, was a herser. He was a descendant of a famous family. The The saga represents him as the most prominent of the men who followed Al Deepminded to Iceland. Mm-hmm. And we can debate that situation. Some people read him more as an f- unfree servant of Al. Uh, others as a well-off man looking for land and prestige. Well, what's for sure is that Dalakol didn't have his own land claim in Iceland. Uh, he marries Auth's granddaughter, Thorgerd, and they live on a farmland given to them as a wedding gift by Auth. And then Thorgerd uh, left town as soon as Dalakol died. So I guess mm-hmm. it's not shocking that Hoskold might be a little insecure about his position. But, I mean, John, we're way off in the weeds here. We, we can go back to episode number one and review all of this stuff if you want. <laughs> but uh, I thought we were going to talk about Olaf. Oh, right. Okay. So uh, the point was that Thorlik Hoskoldson has been helped to an excellent marriage. Uh, and, of course, we know from Njal's saga that Hoskold's daughter, Halgrith Longlegs, ends up married to Gunnar Hamundersen. Yeah, not too shabby. Mm-hmm. Not a marriage that ends especially well, but still impressive. Mm-hmm. And um, Barth, uh, another of Hoskold's kids, is now running his father's farm, and he's clearly positioned to inherit the land and wealth that goes with being a descendant of Al the Deep-Minded's clan. Um, and then there's Olaf. 
And then there's Olaf. Right. Yeah. Uh, fostered to Thord Godi, uh, who's a man Hoskold has open contempt for. Uh, he's the son of a woman who's still kept in slavery. He's increasingly angry about his mother's poor treatment at Hoskold and Joran's hands. Uh, Olaf is the son of a slave and grandson of a landless marauder, but he's also the son of a chieftain and the grandson of a king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this kid's got some serious knots in his family tree, but they're impressive knots. He certainly knots. does. Yes, uh, and he's got a mother who's proud of her bloodline and her son and wants them both taken seriously. Her growing irritation about Hoskold comes in part because Hoskold now claims that Olaf's old enough to look after his mother himself, and so he stops helping to run or assist with Melkorka's farm and her finances. In other words, he stops paying his concubine support? Is that something? I mean, that, that's an oversimplification, but essentially, yes. <laughs> well, it's what we'd expect from Hoskold and his behavior patterns, but uh, sure. Melkorka's not having it. Um, she decides on a multi-pronged response. So she waits for Hoskold to head off to the All Thing one summer, and then she sends for her son. She says, It's time for you to go to Ireland and to look up our family there, for it's true what I told you. Murkjartan is my father, and he is the king of the Irish. Orn the Norwegian has a ship. He's leaving soon, and you should be on it. Mother, I've mentioned this to my father before. He's not in favor of the idea. And my foster father's wealth is in land and livestock. He's got little to offer in cash or in exportable goods. Nice dig at Thord Goaty there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, then we'll do it the hard way. I've had my fill of fools calling you a slave, son. If it's money and goods that's stopping you from making the journey, I have a plan for that. You see, Thorbjorn Pockmarked, my neighbor, he's been helping me to farm for years, and he has asked for my hand in marriage. I'm sure he'll provide the wealth needed for you to make this journey if he gets me as his wife into the bargain. And there's another advantage. It'll sting old Hoskold badly when he learns that you've left and that I'm married. And uh, that's more or less how it goes, uh, yeah. leaving aside the quality of our various voices. Mm-hmm. Uh Olaf asks Thorbjorn Pockmark for the money for a voyage. Uh, he agrees to his mother marrying Thorbjorn in exchange. And before long, he's sailing off with Orn the Norwegian. Uh, and although it isn't mentioned uh, yet, he's wearing a gold ring on his arm, which his mother says was a gift from her father when she grew her first tooth, and a belt and knife that were hers from childhood. So our story arc is Olaf's journey to Ireland to learn about his mother's heritage, spurred on by Melkorka's long-standing resentment of her life in Iceland. And he's well-equipped for the trip, thanks to her marriage and to her long-term plan of teaching him the Irish language. Right, and apparently managing to hide a golden arm ring through multiple decades as a slave. This arm ring, it, it was your birthright, so I hid it. In, in <laughs> no, the no. Place I- no, no, no. <laughs> uh, she's very resourceful, I guess, you know? Oh, yeah, that's what she is. <laughs> And definitely not keistering any jewelry. Uh, <laughs> well, I, we can't say whether she did or not. We don't know. I mean, uh, so Helga Crest talks about Makorka as being essentially trapped by her circumstances in the narrative. And I think there's something yeah. to that. Uh, as she puts it, Makorka's only means of rebellion lie in her refusal to speak. But I do think we're seeing here that Makorka maintains or returns to a position of rebellion repeatedly in her life. There's a pattern, though, right, that... Melkorka rebels by submitting or by sacrificing. Yeah, that's interesting. We can definitely read the refusal to speak as a sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. You see, she gives up the right to speak on her own behalf in order to resist by refusing to consent in her slavery. Mm -hmm. I I think Cress is right there. Sure. 
Uh, but now she sacrifices her degree of independence that she's gained as a sort of concubine on a farm that she's allowed to run. Mm-hmm. Um, she gives that up by marrying Thorbjorn Pockmarked, but she does that to gain the capital so that her son can reestablish her link to Ireland and claim his own status as her son and as a prince. Yeah. It's a move that comes from not having many cards to play, I guess. Yeah. Melkorka's able to get all the value that she can out of the little autonomy that she has. It's actually really impressive. Mm-hmm. But she also has to suffer a loss of self-direction as the price of getting what she wants. And the prize is that she does get that sting at Hoskold that was part of her goal. Mm-hmm. When he returns home and learns what's happened, he's deeply angry. But since the situation involves his kin and followers, he's more or less powerless to do anything about it. Also, he did say that Olaf was uh, old enough to look after his mother. Mm -hmm. He really can't interfere if Olaf decides to consent to his mother's marriage, even though we know that it was Melkorka's idea, not Olaf's. Exactly. All right, so now let's have a look at what Melkorka's been able to buy for her freedom. The the first leg of Olaf's journey is to Norway, since that's where Orn is heading. Mm -hmm. When they arrive, Orn takes him to meet Harald Greycloak, who's the current king, and Olaf is offered a place among Harald's followers. And once Harald's mother, Gunild, learns that Olaf is the nephew of her good friend, Hrut, she's also very friendly with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the text gets some pretty unsubtle innuendo going in here. It says, <laughs> some people even said that she would have enjoyed Olaf's company regardless of who his kinsmen were. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Are you into photographs, Olaf? Oh, jeez. Hmm? Could be, could nudge, be. Nudge, nudge, say no uh, more. Uh, but yeah, as we <laughs> as we saw last time, this saga takes a positive view of Gunild's interest in Icelanders. Right. Um, right. All this innuendo is us. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right because we we've read Njal's saga and we know right. what kind of we, woman she we is. know her too well. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, she overhears Olaf and Orn arguing about making a trip to Ireland before the summer ends, and and uh, Orn's not interested in doing this, but uh, mm-hmm. she immediately intercedes and offers to fund his trip anyways. Uh, she arranges a ship for him with 60 men on board, and at Olaf's request, they're even equipped for battle. This is not a, an inexpensive venture that she's mm-hmm. paying for, so he must be very good looking. Now, once his ship isn't going to be at risk anymore, Orn actually decides to sign on and join Olaf's crew. So mm-hmm. when they ship out, they've actually switched positions. Yeah. Right. And once again, Gunild is there at the shore to see her favorite new Icelander off. And so is the king, in fact. Well, they're big fans. Of course they are. And and the king praises Olaf and predicts great things for him. And with a promise to visit Norway on his return voyage, Olaf and his crew set sail into the North Sea. Now, as things turn out, the king's benediction is the last bit of good luck that Olaf has for a while. The oh, wow. crossing is terrible, with fogs and headwinds slowing the trip. Uh, and at one point, they nearly get let off course entirely. You know, we can skip over some of that, though, since the only real significance is that Olaf puts Orn in charge of navigation, and Orn sees them through the bad weather rather safely. So, good, good job, right. Orn. Right. Now, this is another example that we've talked about before of the weather as commentary on a voyage. Right? We've mm, mentioned this yeah. in previous episodes. Olaf is heading into an unknown and potentially hostile situation, and the bad weather is a sign to us that things aren't safe or certain. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe that Olaf is feeling conflicted and worried about his trip. Yeah. He never suggests that, though. I mean, he's been adamant about the trip and shows complete confidence in his mother's judgment in sending him to his grandfather. So I'm not sure he's sure. he's uncertain at all. Right. No, but I'm talking about the pathetic fallacy, right? The, the sea mm. and the sky are showing us the subtext of the narrative. 
Well, sure, but if that's the case, it stays subtext. Mm -hmm. See, Olaf's determined to make it to Ireland. And after a long and stressful time, they do. One evening, a rocky shore suddenly appears from out of the gloom. And so they decide to drop anchor until the morning. And when the sun rises, they see Ireland immediately before them. And then they realize that they've basically beached themselves in very shallow water. Hurrah! I mean, not about the accidental beaching. But he made Mm -hmm. it! Olaf is about to set foot in Ireland for the first time, ready to take his first steps into a larger world. Thanks, Obi-Wan. Part 12! Olaf, Prince of Ireland! So, we made it sound as if getting to Ireland is the entire challenge, but that's not actually true. No. Once they see where they are, they realize that they've come ashore well off of their intended trajectory. And this is Ireland, a place where Viking ships aren't exactly welcomed with open arms and down the coast. Yet you commit one small century of atrocities and lootings and people get so touchy. Yeah. Orn says, I doubt we'll receive a warm welcome here. We're far from the ports where we might be assured of trading in peace. And now that the tide is going out and we're stranded like minnows, things are going to get rough. By Irish law, anyone can claim our ship is stranded. And take everything on board for themselves. What are we to do? Oh, really? Okay. I'm sure we'll be fine, but I see an estuary over there, and I'm pretty sure we're just stuck on some mud. How about we drag the ship over there and beach it? Because I'm pretty sure I also just saw a group of men down along the shore. So they definitely know we're here. (laughs) And they do that, which is one of those things that the sagas make sound easy. Just... They moved the ship as Olaf suggested, completely ignoring the logistical problems of moving a large ship off of a muddy seabed that you're also standing on. Mm -hmm. Well, portaging ships is definitely one of the things that a ship's crew would have to be prepared to do, right? Mm -hmm. They probably didn't look forward to it because it's a lot of work, but they did it. Um, And that's on solid ground. In Silt, uh, where they are now, it would have been a real effort. But uh, Mm -hmm. 60 men, that'd make it a lot easier. I mean, yeah, I guess. And especially if those men know that a successful portaging of the ship would be their best bet of avoiding being slaughtered by Irish warriors. (laughs) Nothing like a little existential terror to lend muscle to your efforts, is it? Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of trouble involved, but we know they did it. We have uh, medieval sources that actually describe portages. Uh, The Nestor Chronicle, for example, (laughs) traces the routes taken by the Rus along the Thiprau River and includes portages along the way. And there's a few Danish place names that include the word drag. Uh, Those places are usually low-lying land near running water and probably refer to places of portage. Mm. Uh, You can also, uh, people who are interested, the Rothskild uh, Viking Ship Museum offers some information online about how it was done, uh, including the process of felling and trimming straight logs for rolling the ship and coating the logs in animal grease to help glide the ship. Animal grease logs. That's just great fun. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Everything we add to this makes the idea of portage even less appealing, if if I'm honest with you. Uh, Again, I don't think it was ever something anyone looked forward to. Uh, But, hey, if anyone listening knows anything about this or has actually moved a Viking ship uh, across uh, land or muddy shores, uh, let us know. Okay, I know we have great listeners, but seriously, if any of you have tried portaging a ship using medieval technology, I will be deeply impressed. 
Uh, well, why don't you just try it out yourself, John? Try portaging your kayak from your bathtub to your hot tub. It, it's like it's that. easier to just carry my kayak. It's a small kayak. <laughs> well, however it works, they get it done. Uh, soon the ship is at anchor in the deepest part of the estuary, and not a moment too soon. Because as Olaf and his men are catching their breath and straightening out their backs, a band of Irishmen rush onto the beach and call out to them. And just as Orn predicted, they immediately lay claim to the ship. If you all just give us the property on your ship, we won't harm you. At least until the king pronounces judgment on you. It's not terribly reassuring. No. Uh, basically, it's uh, give us all your stuff and we won't kill you until later. <laughs> it kind of lacks that comforting quality. Yeah, but significantly, they're shouting in Irish uh, rather than oh, yeah. in an unconvincing Irish accent. Uh, so the act- they're actually speaking in Irish and they don't expect anyone on the ship to understand them. But Olaf responds in Irish as well. I know your laws, he says. And I also know that you can't make such a claim against a ship when it has an Irish speaker on board. Well, here I am. And I warn you, (laughs) we are peaceful men, but not the sort to give up without a fight. I like that. Well, here I am. (laughs) So good. So that's that, right? A reasonable counter-argument presented in the native tongue. Should be pretty convincing. QED. Uh, No, the the Irish look confused for a brief second and then charge the ship while screaming their war cries. They rush the ship. Yes. On foot. Yep. See, this would be the the ship that's anchored in deep water. Is that the one? Yep, that's the one. Yep. Ah, okay. Uh, The the Irish warriors run out until they're up to their armpits, but the water around the ship is too deep to walk through. So Ah. they slow down and then stop. Not exactly sure what to do next. (laughs) Didn't think this not one the, through, did you? Definitely not the A-team when it comes to the bright Irish warriors. No, no. Uh, the Norsemen on board respond with a show of force of their own. They crash their shields down into the gunwale of the ship, creating an unbroken wall of linden wood with spears sticking out below the shields. An impressive and, uh, um, I assume, daunting sight for the Irishmen in the water. Right, and then there's a faint but audible sucking sound as the Irishmen all try to retreat in the muck at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Olaf himself leaps onto the prow, and here we get our first real glimpse of him in his finery. The, ta- the saga describes him. He wore a coat of mail, and on his head, a helm with golden plates. At his waist was a sword, its hilt inlaid with gold, and in his hand he held a spear with a hooked blade, also much decorated. Before him he held a red shield adorned with a lion in gold. Olaf the Peacock, indeed. This guy knows how to cut a figure, doesn't he? But does he know how to cut an Irishman? Well, uh, no one wants to be the first to find out. (laughs) See, the Irish warriors back off and begin to speculate about whether this is a scout ship for a raiding force. Because who else would have such a man in charge? And so they send for the king, who is visiting a wealthy supporter in the area very conveniently, I might add. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And they, they pass some time shooting arrows and throwing spears at Olaf's ship, but uh, but no one's really hit or injured. Mm-hmm. Until finally, the messengers return with the king. And this this is King Mercartan. That's the guy. Now, obviously, he's a bit older, but he is still dressed for a fight and looks capable of winning one. Now, Olaf's men have been feeling pretty confident, uh, what with the fairly incompetent showing by the Irish so far, but this is different. The king yeah. shows up with his champions... And they're clearly an elite combat troop. 
Um, the Norsemen fall silent and are more than a little nervous. Remember, they're they're warriors, but they aren't necessarily the cream of the Norwegian crop. Right. Uh, but Olaf says, don't worry, this is a bit of good luck. Those men are welcoming their king, Mirkjotun. You, you there on the boat. It's a ship, actually. Okay, fine, it's a ship. Who are you? I am called Olaf Hoskildsson of Iceland, and you are... So you son of a bitch, I'm I'm King Mirkarton <laughs> of the Irish. How dare you speak that way of my mother, your daughter? Uh, <laughs> Who's that now? What? Uh, well, that is certainly interesting. Uh, Olaf and the king do talk for a little while, and the king begins to suspect that Olaf's hiding something. Uh, he finally yeah. asks more pointedly about Olaf's family connections, and Olaf delivers the speech that he's probably been practicing all the way from Norway. Hello. My name is Olaf Hoskelson. You are my mother's father. Prepare to hug. <laughs> um, not exactly those words, but a little bit like that. You um, know, it's a it's a nicer version of what we saw in The Princess Bride. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the men of this ship are followers of King Harald Gunnilsson. As to my own kin, my father is called Hoskuld, a man of prominent family. As for my mother's kinship, I expect you know more about it than I do. Her name is Melkorka, and I am told that she is your own daughter. It is for that reason that I made the journey here, and it is of great importance to me to hear your response to these words. Well, unfortunately for Olaf, the king's response is no response at all. Mm -hmm. He silently turns and walks back to his own men, and when they question him, all he says is, this fellow Olaf is clearly a man of high birth, whether or not he's any kin to us. And no one speaks better Irish than he does. <laughs> I think that's ridiculous, too, right? Like, well, you know. He's well-schooled. His grammar's perfect. Sure. Um, yeah. But after some deliberation, he, he offers safe conduct to all of the men of Olaf's ship, including protection of their, their goods. So that's a mm -hmm. nice thing. Everyone yep. uh, is, is safe, um, and they can still make money. Uh, but he also adds... As to your kinship with us, uh, we will need to discuss this question better before I can give you an answer. Right. Uh, so to cut a long saga short, they talk for a while, and eventually Olaf shows the king the gold arm ring that his mother gave him. Mm -hmm. Mercjartan takes the ring in his hands, and his face flushes suddenly. This token is irrefutable. And even if it were not, you resemble your mother so much that you could be recognized by that alone. I do not hesitate to acknowledge you as my kinsman and invite you and your men to my court. What honor you may win there will depend on the man you prove yourself to be when put to the test. This is a, this is a surprising moment and kind of a rare mm -hmm. one in the sagas. Uh, we get various figures who are Irish by extraction or by birth, but we don't get this moment of returning to Ireland and affirming those ties. Yeah. I mean, we do get plenty of connections to Norway, but not often to Ireland. Now, mm -hmm. some of that is down to different attitudes toward the Norse and Irish peoples in Iceland. And certainly yeah. in the 13th and 14th century, they are drawing sure. those connections a lot more strongly. Absolutely. Uh, Iceland and Norway shared a language. Uh, they imagined themselves as sharing a cultural lineage. And as you say, they're increasingly sharing politics in the 13th mm -hmm. century. Even though Ireland's cultural and genetic imprint on Iceland is significant, it just doesn't get the same respect in the literature that the Norse do, uh, yeah. which also may have something to do with what we're seeing here. Norse connections were often patrilineal, where the Irish connections were often matrilineal. 
And in an androcentric culture, in a male-centered culture, which, I mean, we can debate how androcentric the actual historical culture of Iceland was, but it's still something that we can... It's pretty male-centered. Yeah, no, no, it was. Legally, culturally, socially, very androcentric. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, But my point was that the literature, the sagas, are probably even more male-centered than the culture. Uh, So that idea of Norwegian identity as being a legacy of the fathers of Iceland to their sons means that it's treated more warmly than Irish kinships might be. Yeah, but this makes sense if we accept that Laxdala saga is an exceptional saga. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few sagas that place women's stories at the center of the narrative, even though we haven't seen that much of it yet. Um, so even at this moment, when a young man goes off to meet his royal grandfather, it's still a story of a woman's cultural and genetic legacy to her child. Right. And that gets even greater emphasis when Merkjartan, Olaf, and their company return to Dublin. The mm. story of the arrival of Olaf and the survival of the long-lost Melkorka has preceded them. And on their arrival, Olaf is greeted by an elderly woman who has pulled herself out of her sickbed to see him. The king leans over and tells him that the woman is Melkorka's ancient nurse, who has been worried over her fate for decades. And Olaf wordlessly dismounts gathers her into a huge hug, and then sits down with her on his lap to tell her that his mother is safe and sound in Iceland. This is legitimately a heartwarming moment, straight out of a a good old Disney movie. Absolutely. I mean, the old woman begins weeping with joy, and Olaf hands her the belt and knife that his mother gave him. She runs her hands over his face and says, My happiness is doubled by seeing such an outstanding son of Melkorkus, just as I'd expect from her. Now, it's hard to imagine any other saga giving this kind of attention to the love of a nurse for the woman that she raised. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why this saga is so exceptional. And it's not just the women, either. This author Mm -hmm. cares about the emotional bonds of most of the major figures in this saga, male or female. And we'll see some of that in the the episodes to come. Yeah, not just kinship bonds or bonds of support, emotional connections. Uh, You know, we see Olaf get off his horse to embrace this woman. How many times do we see men hugging anybody in the sagas? Uh, this is uh, this nurse isn't really even dynastically important. She's not narratively necessary from a utilitarian point of view. But the saga is that much richer because of her presence and because of her story. Yeah, yeah. All right, so King Mjörkjartan and Olaf, they spend the winter chasing off Viking raiders from the shores of Ireland. Now, this king, you know, he's... <laughs> this is This is exactly why the Irish weren't so happy to see Olaf's ship on the coast. Yeah. There's a whole lot of Viking raiding going on in the Irish Sea in the 10th century. Oh, so lot. Certainly enough to keep uh, the king's retinue busy. <laughs> right. And Olaf rapidly gains the king's respect and admiration for being skilled and fearless in combat. In fact, he's he's so impressed that when the winter ends, Murkjartan calls an assembly of his most important followers and makes the following announcement. This past autumn, a man came to us who proved himself to be the son of my daughter. And of good family on his father's side as well. Olaf has since shown himself to be so accomplished and such of such determination that we have not one man in our kingdom to match him. Therefore, I wish Olaf to inherit the crown after my days are done, since he's better suited for the job than my own sons. Ouch. Ouch indeed. I mean, we have to assume that a gathering of the rich and powerful men of Ireland would actually include the king's sons, right? I mean, you'd you'd have to think so, yes. So so they're there in the assembly, uh-huh, listening to this speech. 
Yep. And likely staring daggers at their brand new Icelandic nephew. Uh, definitely. Uh, possibly holding daggers for him as well. <laughs> well, then it's a, it's a good thing Olaf's a smart young man. Uh, yeah. He thanks his grandfather and praises him to the crowd, but then says, I'd rather not take the chance of dealing with the reaction of Merkjartan's sons after his death. Very smart. <laughs> I, I, would, I would rather enjoy a brief spell of honor rather than a long rule of shame. In fact, I'm going to be returning to Norway as soon as I can get the ship ready and find a decent wind. Besides, my mother will be awaiting my return, and it would bring her little joy if I were to fail to return home. Yeah, and there's a barely audible sound of several uncles just sliding daggers back into their sheaths. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, this is really our first chance to see something that's uh, going to be a defining characteristic of Olaf's. He's willing to give up an immediate chance to grab at glory in order to maintain peace and to maintain good relations with his family. Sure. Almost to a fault, um, as we'll see later. For now, Olaf and his men, they pack up the ship and prepare to sail. Olaf asks to take his mother's nurse with him. She's been in good spirits and health all winter, so she's ready for the trip. Um, And he knows that the reunion would mean a lot to both women. But the king refuses, saying that there's no need for that. I think narratively it just doesn't matter. So she's going to stay right where she is. Instead, he gives Olaf a gold inlaid spear and a sword because Olaf needs more gold stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, this ship has smooth sailing all the way back, which again makes sense if we think of this as indicative of reflecting stages of Olaf's journey. The voyage home is always easy. Yeah, the, the, the difficult part of the voyage is behind him. And so good winds are easy to find. Uh, There's no narrative tension to be gained from a storm on the way home, right? Just ask Odysseus. (laughs) Well, there's the brilliance of Homer, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So the king refusing to let the nurse travel to Iceland with Olaf. Um, I mentioned it there. Uh, What's that about? Oh, good. I was going to bring this up if you didn't. So, like, reading this text through a feminist lens, uh, we're seeing masculine authority engaging in a deliberate interference in the bond between these two women. I suppose we could read it that way. We don't have to read it that way, though, uh, to recognize that at least King Merkjartan being kind of a jerk for no good reason. I mean, this lady's close to death, right? Yeah, contrarian at the very least. Uh, It it does seem deliberately cruel. The nurse is sick and elderly. Uh, I suppose he could argue that her health would be at risk. But she's already nearing the end of her life. Uh, and her fragile return to strength has come from knowing that Melkorka survived being taken at age 15. Yeah. It's just an, it's an odd line to include. Like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. she, she wants to come, but he says no. It, it doesn't move the narrative forward in any way. So it's Well, and it's that's an why I think choice. this is the point of it, right? Because yeah. um, otherwise there would be no reason to bring it up, right? We would simply right. say, well, give my best wishes to Melkorka, right? That right. this is being brought up in order for McCartan to refuse it. Yeah, so, like yeah, like you said, she might or might not survive the trip, but she also might or might not survive another winter in Dublin, I mean, if you're mm-hmm. so concerned about her health. Uh, besides, it's never even suggested that she, concerns for the old woman's health are what's going on here. I don't. In fact, I don't think that's what Merkjartan is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just says no, apparently because it doesn't seem important to him, and it's easy enough for him to just say no. Yeah, and suddenly we're getting a different side of Merkjartan. Uh, He's gone from an aging father nearly overcome by the news of his daughter's survival to this apparently cruel king, uh, humiliating his sons in public and scorning the idea of sending this elderly woman to see her foster daughter one last time. More like jerk Yarton. Hmm. Hmm. 
<laughs> How do you feel about that? I mean, it's not my best stuff. I'm going to give it a C, C plus. All right. I'll give it one thumb up. <laughs> All right. Now, as we sit here blathering, Olaf and his crew are sailing out of the harbor with Mercartin waving solemnly. Mercartin's sons, relieved but still thoughtfully fingering their dagger hilts and wondering when this strange man might reappear. Mm. And, of course, the old nurse caught between joy and despair as she watches the son of Melkorka sail away without her. Well, this got sad all of a sudden. Well, I don't write them. I just report them. All right. Homeward bound. I wish I was. Part 12. The Return of the Princeling. So, I think we can yada yada most of the return journey. In fact, I think we well, should. I, yeah, I agree. Uh, we've got to cut a few corners somewhere in this thing, and there's there's lots to cover still. Uh-huh. So, Olaf and Orn return to Norway first and spend a winter there. Uh, Gunild and King Harald are delighted to have them back, and they're treated with great honor all winter. In mm-hmm. the spring, Harald gives Olaf a suit of clothes dyed all in scarlet and a Nor of his own to keep as his ride back to Iceland. Now, does this Nor um, travel through time, or is it just a straight Nor? It does not, but it does travel through space. <laughs> That's great. All right. <laughs> so in other words, it's a regular Nor. Well, he's being treated very well. Yeah, he's being treated very well. Like, narrative exaggeration well. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's partly reflected glory from Uncle Hrut, I guess, who, you know, he was super popular in the court, but... It also reflects Olaf's new status as a princeling. I mean, he's returned to Iceland with a big bump in his status, and and the new outfit and ship reflect that. He's got to go home in style. Agreed. But let's jump ahead to Iceland. Uh, Olaf, after another uh, easy voyage, lands near his father's farm, and Hoskuld, who's still alive but quite old, uh, rides out to greet him. There's a mm-hmm. big reunion, and Hoskuld insists on Olaf staying with him for the winter. Yeah, and the winter is, it's really just a victory lap for Olaf. Everyone hears about his confirmation of his royal roots and about how well he was treated in the Norwegian court. He's able to show off his new red suit and his new ship and a whole lot of wealth that he brought back with him. And generally, everything's coming up Olaf. Yeah, and obviously, it's not very long before Melkorka comes to see him. Uh, She's eager for news from home, and Olaf is able to tell her about her father and brothers. Mm-hmm. But when she asks about the health of her old nurse and is told she's still alive, things get a little awkward. She says, why didn't you do the favor of bringing her here to me? Well, mother, they didn't want me to bring your nurse with me to Iceland. As you say. And Melkorka's clearly disappointed, but she says nothing more about it. Yeah, it's the only hint we get that Melkorka had more personal reasons for sending her son to Ireland. Uh, she never suggests returning to Ireland herself, but Olaf's job was to serve as her representative, and her representative should have known to bring back her foster mother. Yeah. We do also learn that Melkorka has given birth while Olaf was away, which is mm. pretty impressive given what I have to assume is um, she's pretty deep into her old age now, isn't she? Well, I mean, I think she's probably in her early 40s. Not early not 40s. too aged for birth, but certainly you know it's uh, uh, it? you, on you, the older side for medieval. Birth. Yeah, you did you did the math on this, and you told me a, a little yeah. while ago. What was it? So there? she was fifteen uh, when she was kidnapped. Okay, she spent a few years uh, in slavery before she was purchased. So she was purchased in her late teens. So let's say uh, two. She spent so all right. So then she was seventeen. Twenty years later uh, is when we pick up the story with Olaf being an adult. Okay, so she's thirty-seven. Uh, 
Well, and then he's now been away for for a few winters because he's oh, a couple of winters because he stopped in Ireland for a winter and okay. Norway for a winter. So she's about 40. About 40. OK, well, you could still yeah. pop out a kid at 40. Come on now. Sure. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Well, and, you know, Thorbjorn Pockmark, he's been waiting his whole life for, uh, you know, for someone to, to snuggle up to. And finally. And for a princely child of his very own. Right. Well, he he doesn't need to worry about Olaf anymore because Thorbjorn Pockmarked and Melkorka, they have a son, and that son is named Lambi, who is is gonna grow up to be an important ally of Olaf's family. So remember Lambi, yeah. the son of Thorbjorn Pockmarked and Melkorka. Yeah, we'll be seeing plenty of him later in the saga. Yeah. Uh, now, this is essentially the end of Melkorka's role in the story. The only information we get about her after this is of her death from old age years later. We're left with a life story that includes some small satisfactions, but mostly it's the story of a woman caught in terrible circumstances and forced to live within the limits set by others. I think that by the end here, we can see her as having at least still a little bit of self-determination, definitely Mm -hmm. within those limits. You're right. But she's chosen her husband and made a homestead for herself and her family. It's, It's not the husband or the place she'd have picked if she'd had actual freedom. It's just the best she can do within the life she's been forced to lead. Yeah. I, you know, I want to applaud Mercjartan for really putting in the effort to uh, come and find his long lost daughter. <laughs> well, we've established, you know, he is, uh, he's, he's a bit of a jerk. <laughs> he's like, my daughter's in Iceland. You found her. Great. Okay, then. Leave her there. Anyway, as <laughs> That's I was the saying. the end of that story. I feel I have closure now. Yes, exactly. I always wondered what happened to that dog. <laughs> So uh, uh, the narrative, uh, it, the narrative now develops the story of Olaf's situation in Iceland. He's really taking center stage in the saga mm-hmm. now. Uh, he and Hoskold talk about finding a wife for him, and Hoskold has a definite candidate in mind for the job. He says, I think it best that you take over the farm at Goldestader from your foster father. I have a wife in mind to help you. There's a man named Eil, the son of Skatlegrim. He lives in Borg, in Borgafjord. Ail has a daughter named Thorgerd, and there's no better match for you in Borgafjord or far beyond, and it will strengthen your position to make an alliance with the Muyar clan. Hey, it's Ail! Hey, everybody! Ail's back! Yeah, if you've been wondering why the name Olaf Peacock seems a little familiar, this is why. If you recall the last chapters of Ail's saga, Olaf is the son-in-law who Ail comes to live with in his old age. Right, and Thorgerd is the daughter who helps Ail through his suicidal depression after the death of his sons. Yes. This is a definite power couple of 10th century Iceland. Absolutely. Uh, and Thorgerd is going to play an absolutely huge role in this saga. Yeah, we are starting to get some of the figures in place for the central story that this saga tells. Like I said, uh-huh. it's all coming together. And Thorgerd is right in the middle of it. Uh, but for now, she's just someone Hoskold thinks would work out well as a daughter-in-law. So we know that this is going to work out fine, but Olaf doesn't know that. He hasn't <laughs> read the books yet. And right. he's still a bit worried that Ail's reputation and wealth puts Thorgerd a little out of his league. He's still mm. self-conscious about his own origins. Mm. I'll follow your advice on this, father. But I warn you that if our proposal is turned down, as I think it will be, I'll be very angry about it. Yeah, yeah. I'll take the risk, son. 
That's nice snark from old man Hoskold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he may be past his prime, but he's still not going to take any lip from his illegitimate son, no matter what he's prince of. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so the two of them travel early to the All Thing to get a prime booth. Uh, it's Olaf's first time at the assembly, and he spends some time strolling around in his bright red clothes from King Harold, mm-hmm. in his golden sword and spear from Grandpa Merkyarton. It's all a way of getting some positive buzz going. Right. That's not exactly how the author puts it, but it's definitely what he's doing. And it's working. We're told, Everyone who saw Olaf remarked on how he cut a most imposing and handsome figure. And so when they finally do visit Ale's booth, Ale is all smiles. Oh, yeah. Uh, This is, I have to warn you, this is a very different Ale than we know from his own saga. Mm -hmm. Um, Hang hang on, I gotta get my, I gotta get my Ale voice back. Yeah, just uh, grab some sandpaper and swallow it. I think uh, that'll help. Gargle some glass. Yeah. Uh, Okay. I know, Hoskold, that you've earned respect and come from a prominent family. And Olaf here has become famous for his journey abroad. It hardly surprises me that you two, lacking neither in looks nor in family connections, should set their sights so high. But it comes to this. The question will have to be taken up with Thorgirth. Because there's not a man alive who could make Thorgirth his wife if she were set against it. Wow, it's nice to see you again, Ale. Welcome back. Nice to be here. And he's right, by the way. Oh, yeah, he's he knows his daughter. Uh, yeah. And since he suspects this may be a difficult situation, he decides to talk with Thorgirth privately rather than bringing his guests to speak with her. Mm-hmm. So, my daughter, there's a man named Olaf Hoskelson. You've probably heard of him. He's been the talk of the all thing. He visited me with his father today. He asked for your hand in marriage for his son. I deferred the question to you, and I'd like to hear your answer, but I should say that such a good match deserves a good answer. She says, You know, father, I've heard it. <laughs> Because she's, she's 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 Ale's daughter, right? So now, but remember, it, she's she's from the side of the family that turns out beautiful and and outgoing. oh, that's right, that's right. So there's little birds twittering all around her, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, father, I've heard you say that of all your children, I was your favorite. It seems to me that cannot be true if you seriously intend me to marry some slave girl's son, no matter how pretty and gossiped about he may be. Oh, okay. No, hang on there. Your nose for news hasn't served you as well as it usually does. (laughs) Haven't you heard that Olaf is the grandson of the Irish King Merkyarton? He comes of even better family on his mother's side than his father's. And that by itself should be good enough for us. Now, they debate for a while, but Thorgerth, she refuses to be convinced and -hmm. rejects the proposal. Imagine the daughter of Eoscott Grimson being difficult. Hmm. Or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Knowing her own mind, I think, is the way both of them would prefer to put it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, Ale then pays a visit to Hoskold's booth, where he gives him the bad news. Hoskold's not quite ready to give up, though. He says, I agree it looks difficult, but I think we're doing the right thing. Let me talk to Olaf while you continue to speak with Thorgerth. And Hoskold then approaches Olaf, who was away during this meeting. Uh, he actually, Hoskold shows uncharacteristic skill in dealing with his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tells him about the problem, but presents it as resistance rather than rejection, and hints that a solution may still be possible. So he's not totally devoid of guile. 
He's just mm-hmm. uh, oblivious a lot of time. <laughs> uh, yeah, and obviously when Olaf learns he's been rejected, he isn't pleased about it. I warned you, father, that I would be displeased by a failed proposal. It's true enough what they say, though. When one wolf hunts another, he may eat the prey. I'm going to see Ale myself. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, Ale has set the stage for Olaf's arrival. See, Ale makes sure that he, Thorgerth, and several other people are all sitting in their booth when Olaf arrives with his father in tow. Hoskold sits down by Ale and begins a chat, but Olaf remains standing until he spots a well-dressed and good-looking woman about his own age, which or who he realizes must be Thorgerth. It is, by the way. It's 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 Thorgerth. We're not setting up a wacky French farce here. <laughs> I, I wish we were, though. It would be just the. <laughs> I would love to see the right turn into a French farce right here. <laughs> but uh, Olaf walks across to her and he sits on the bench beside her. Thorgerth ignores him for a moment and then turns to face him. Hello. And who are you? I'm Olaf Hoskelson, but. I'm sure you must think it's bold of a slave girl's son to dare to sit with you and strike up a conversation with you. You must think you've done more dangerous things in your life than talk to a woman. Oof. I I love the implication there. Yeah. He may think he's done more dangerous things, but he hasn't. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the record, she obviously knows who he is. It's kind of hard not to know, (laughs) you know. He just walks in with Hoskold. He's wearing probably the only completely red outfit at the All Thing. He's got a gold sphere on his back. He's got a handsome face. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not like there's four of this guy walking around. Right. (laughs) Uh, So they continue chatting for hours, uh, but no one gets close enough to hear what they're saying. Meanwhile, their fathers keep up meaningless small talk and keep watching them out of the corners of their eyes. Mm-hmm. And they're quietly congratulating themselves on pulling off a match they both wanted. Now, the, now the point is that this marriage, it's going to happen. Because late in the afternoon, they call their fathers over and reintroduce the topic themselves. Thorgerth now says that she supposes she'll agree to the match if it's what her father wants. And Olaf and Thorgerth are betrothed right there on the spot. Right. Now, again, we knew about all this, but it's a very different story in Ale's saga. Yeah. Uh, the entire courtship there, I mean, it's, hang on, <clears throat> I've got it right here. Olaf was very wealthy, the handsomest man in Iceland of his time, and of a noble character. He asked Thorgerth, Ale's daughter, to marry him. Thorgerth was attractive, tall, wise, and proud-spirited, but well-mannered in daily life. Ale was well acquainted with Olaf, and knew the match was a worthy one. So, Thorgerth was given to Olaf. She <laughs> went home with him to Hjalderholt. Uh-huh. Yeah, so... There are a few reasons that the Ale Saga author, um, John, did we ever decide if we'd call the infamous Snorri Sturluson the author of Ale Saga? I think we decided that we would, yes. All right, so there are reasons why Snorri might have skipped over this courtship. Uh, the mm-hmm. Lockstyla version is built out of invented parts with direct dialogue and back and forth movement. That certainly isn't super historical, but mm-hmm. it's also another example of how this saga works to place women's perspectives at the center of the story. Right, not not just because Thorgrith gets to speak here. I mean, she's mm-hmm. allowed a voice and an important role in Ale Saga as well. Uh, but in this saga, her consent and her father's acknowledgement of her right to veto the match puts a different light on the authority women wield. Right. Whereas in the Ale Saga version, it's really just a it's a, it's a contract negotiation between men. Right. Sure. Absolutely. And of course, yeah. you know, Snor- for Snorri's perspective, the point of this is really building the pedigree of the clan. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is what's important to him, right? The the details of this courtship aren't important. Right. What's important is that this family is now getting tied into the clan. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this wedding, it uh, it takes place in the fall, and it's a big mm-hmm. to-do since Hoskold and Olaf want to demonstrate their wealth unmistakably. And trust me, this family loves demonstrating their wealth unmistakably yep. throughout the saga. Um, it's, yep. it's, a, it's a sort of silent argument around there that the family is in the same class with Ailes. And just to drive the point home, Olaf gives a gift to Ale at the party after the wedding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He gives Ale the sword king's gift that was given to him by his grandfather in Ireland. Pretty impressive. I mean, it's, it's quite a gift. It really is. And, and Ale doesn't even play it cool. Ale's genuinely impressed with this gift and doesn't care who knows it. Um, he proudly wears it at his belt for the rest of the gathering and leaves well assured that Thorgareth has indeed made a good match. Right, which is important because what she said earlier is true. She is his favorite among his children. Yeah. And it mattered to him that she be happy in her marriage just as he was in his. Mm-hmm. So this is a major inflection point in the saga. In fact, this marriage is why is where many people place the line between the preliminary and main parts of the saga. If we want to talk about the pre-beginning and the beginning, I think we've just crossed that threshold. Right. And not just scholars. Uh, I, I found when I was doing research for this episode, I found a 19th century poem by William Morris called The Lovers of Gudrun that covers the action of Lockstala saga. And it starts from this point forward. Mm. The opening stanza of the poem is. Ye shall know that Olaf to a mighty house did go to take him a wife. Thorgerd he got, the daughter of the man at Berg who sat. After a great life with eyes waxing dim, Ale, the mighty son of Skallagrim. That is a very, very 19th century poem. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> <laughs> and it's the it's the beginning of the next phase of both their lives. As time passes, Olaf and Thorgerth establish themselves as one of the richest and most popular couples in the district. You know, rich and popular often go together in my experience. Yes, they do. Uh, as an outside observer, of course, I don't really have firsthand experience of either one. <laughs> uh, but, but John, you do have a hot tub now, and that uh. makes you rich in my mind. <laughs> That's what makes me rich? Uh-huh. You had a hot tub in your yard in grad school. I did. I was rich then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, besides, what other criteria do you have on your list? What makes me rich? A chain link fence? Oh. A prefab shed? Because if that's it, I'm a, I'm the Olaf Peacock of Massachusetts these days. Well, congratulations on all your success, John. Yeah, all my, all my shed having success. Yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, the point is that Olaf has done quite well for himself. Yes, he has. But does he have a hot tub, John? He lives in Iceland. He has plenty of natural hot tubs all over the place if he wants one. Well, what about a prefab shed? Does he have one of those? I mean, I, I doubt it's prefab, but I guarantee he has a shed. He probably has several sheds. And the chain link fence? I doubt it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, chain link requires a wire weaving machine. It, it wasn't invented until the 19th century. Well, first of all, a uh, great fact there. And second, suck it, Olaf. John's richer than you. He's got chain link fence. By, by a chain link fence. <laughs> uh, let's not be hasty here. First of all, if I were richer than Olaf, I wouldn't have spent the last month digging ditches and hauling gravel to uh, get sheds in a hot tub up and running. I'm sure he has people for that. Sure. Uh, second of all, Olaf's the son of an Irish princess 
and the grandson of a king who gives out gold-inlaid weapons. Sure, sure. But his mother lives on a small farm in Iceland, so... True enough. Uh, but Olaf also stands to inherit quite a lot of property and wealth from his father, Hoskuld, and from his foster father, Thord Godi. Well, that's absolutely true. So he's got you on property. Well, and he works hard to keep those relationships healthy, uh, spending time with his family at both properties. And you're pretty terrible at keeping any relationships healthy, in my experience. <laughs> I plead the fifth. Uh, also, when Thord Godi gets sick and dies, uh, Olaf does take over Godestather. Which is exactly what Hoskuld had in mind when he accepted Thord's offer to foster young Olaf to give him a start in life. Right. Now Olaf owns one of the best properties and largest herds in the valley. Yeah. Now, speaking of Thord Godi's death, the text tells us that Olaf had him buried in a mound near the Laksa, or the Salmon River, at the base of the property. This spot is called Dravarnes, um, and there's, there's a stone wall not far from it, according to the text, called Haugsgard, uh, the mound wall. That's all very specific. It's very specific indeed. It's so specific that I thought it must refer to an actual location that might still be visible during the time of the saga's writing. And maybe, just maybe, it can still be spotted today. So hmm. I started looking all over the internet for this using the Icelandic terms, using you know English translation stuff. I, I couldn't find anything. Um, really, this could be a repeat of the Dritzger debacle. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I couldn't find it. You know, Dritzger, you can you can just imagine any old rock right. will do out there. It's just got to be the right distance. You can make your uh, own. Yeah, make your own. Um, but yeah, I, I I really didn't find anything either in in English or Icelandic to help me locate the spot. And just when I was about to give up, I saw a post from Kauri Tulinius on our Discord's episode discussion thread about the theoretical location of this burial mound. It's very helpful. Theoretical? Yes, which I, suggests yeah. some controversy? I think so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, here's what he said initially. Um, Thor the Rigodi's death won't be mentioned until the next episode, but since he was summons to the thing, I wanted to say that there are some kind of archaeological remains in the place where his gravesite is supposed to be located. Local lore has it as Thor the Rigodi's grave mound, but archaeologists are skeptical. Um, as far as I know, an excavation hasn't been made there. I'm going to attach a color photo of the site from an archaeological report and another black and white one from a magazine article that gives a better idea of its size. Um, so you can you can scroll through the episode discussion thread and find the images and, and what uh, Kauri wrote there um, if you want to. But I'm going to post the images in the show notes for this episode as well. Um, and as with all show note images, uh, I think you might have to actually visit our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com to see them. Um, they don't always show Excellent. up when you click on it yeah. in the, uh, app. Um, you know, it's, it's curious that they haven't excavated that mound. You'd think they would have. I, I know. It, 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 like I said to Kauri, it doesn't seem like, um, it's, uh, it's, it would take a lot of effort to pop it open. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, yeah, so I, I, I really wanted answers, and so I ended up writing to Kauri yesterday to ask him for more information, anything he might have on Thor's burial mound from his sources. And since he was already going to be digging things up for me, I, I also asked him to look at another burial mound um, related to some of the stuff we just talked about. I wanted to know about that that burial mound of Scott Legrim and Bolthvar in uh, Borgerness. Do you remember that one? Uh, yes. It's a... It's the one, if you've ever visited there, it's the one in the park, not far from the Settlement Museum. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely spot, but I have to admit, I was a little suspicious of the claims about the mound. Mm -hmm. They're conveniently located next to the parking lot. <laughs> uh, right. What did Kauri report? 
Uh, well, we started with uh, Scott Ligram's mound because he said that's the easier one. Now, according to Cowrie, the mound is quite old, though records don't really indicate how old it might be exactly. Uh, but apparently it was opened briefly in the 17th century, and some poem was written about it. Uh, he didn't provide the poem, but I'd like to see mm -hmm. that. Um, and then again, it was uh, kind of opened up in the 19th century, uh, but nothing was found on either occasion. So might just be a mound of dirt. It might just be a mound of dirt. But uh, but who knows? Maybe maybe you got to dig deeper. Sure. So what about uh, Thor Gaudi's mound? Well, he said that one's a bit trickier, but in short, archaeologists have determined that it's a low-probability site. So in other words, probably not a burial mound. Very unlikely, yeah. The report from archaeologists who were working on Erikstader, which is nearby, it says that they went over to investigate the mound, um, and they saw that it was flat and very unburial mound-like. <laughs> is that a technical term? Is that the term they used? I doubt that very much. They were probably writing in Icelandic, um, but the uh, the well, gist of it, yes. the gist of it is that they they haven't investigated the site thoroughly enough to determine what it is definitively. But it's probably not a burial mound. Interesting. It's disappointing, but it is interesting. Yeah. Now, all of that back and forth uh, did prompt an interesting conversation about whether or not Thord Godi is a real person or an invention of the saga author. Um, and I got to mm. tell you, I, I told you when in between uh, sections here. The more I read this saga again, the more I'm convinced that the author is going to great lengths to establish some very strong foundations for the rise and importance of Olaf Peacock. Mm. Um, for example, um, I don't know if you you know you know this, but uh, in all of the other texts we see Olaf Peacock appear, uh, Melkorka and Merkjartan, this royal Irish ancestry, that's never mentioned. He's just Olaf, mm. son of Hoskuld. Right. I mean, you know, references to this Irish king happen elsewhere, but not anything like this context. Yeah. And as we said, this Irish princess motif is just that. It's a motif. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that is being imported more or less out of whole cloth. Sure. But boy, doesn't it all make um, Olaf Peacock look good. Um, we get oh, an yeah. origin story for the name of his property, um, mm -hmm. or his initial property anyways, Goldestather, which still has that name. Um, but we don't necessarily know that a man named Thord Godi ever lived there. It's, it's awfully convenient that Thord Godi arrives in Iceland uh, by himself with only his slaves. Uh, he's got a lot of property. He's got a wife that divorces him. He has no children. Um, he's he's just a very conveniently placed individual who happens to have all of this wealth that Olaf Peacock is is brought into. Um, and I mean, the, I would I would add that um, you know, no children only means no surviving children, right? The, uh, the sagas yeah. often don't report on miscarriages, stillbirths, uh, infant True. death, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a he's a conveniently a lone figure whose property can then move to Olaf on his death. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. So uh, we'll be picking up Olaf's story again in the next episode. All right. So uh, <laughs> is that where we're going to leave things for now? Ending at the beginning? Almost. We still have a summons to deliver. Ooh. Summons to the court. May the force be with you, young peacock. <sighs> oh, no. You what? Come on. I mean, you already had a, a Star Wars reference in this one. And, yeah. and, well, I guess I made yeah. it, but whatever. We had our Star Wars reference. Yeah, yeah very much so, but we got to keep going. I mean, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're really going to do this? Wait, oh, wait a minute. Yes. Are you really going to do what I think you're going to do now? Yeah. It's comparative oh. literature. 
see I, here I thought it was just like a quick reference and then it slowly I slowly pieced it together. Oh, <sighs> wait until you see this. <laughs> so what you're going to do is comparative literature between Star Wars, yep, a movie yep. and the saga. Yep. Comparative media? Can we call it that? If that helps you. Um, just a way of backing into <sighs> what I really want to talk about, which is Olaf's story as a monomyth, a hero's journey. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, we well, I can see that. Yeah, we haven't really spent much time on that angle of the sagas, and I think it's time mm-hmm. we at least dip a toe. All right. Well, I know I know you like this angle a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I know you teach it a lot. Um, so hey, I'll get on board the ship. So what you're saying here is Olaf is Luke Skywalker. Actually, no. Sorry, that was a bit of a mislead. Hmm. My fault. He's Anakin. Olaf Hoskelson, Anakin Skywalker. Okay. I don't mean personality. I'm just, I'm just riding. Yeah. I'm just riding yep. on the ship. I'm on the ship. Where I don't the, mean the personality wise. Winds. We can head that off right now. He's not going okay. to embrace his dark power or start massacring younglings or anything. Although to be fair, both of those things do happen in the sagas. Well, not to Olaf. He's practically an no, old Norse boy scout compared to some of the protagonists we've seen. Uh, <laughs> yes. But okay. Let me break this down for you. Uh, but content warning, this is going to involve some discussion of the Phantom Menace. I know that can be traumatic for some people. Sorry about that. Uh, all right. Well, just get on with it then. Let's let's get right. this over with. <laughs> uh, let me lay out the basic narrative for you, Andy. A woman has been okay. taken into slavery. She ends mm-hmm. up being owned by an obnoxious man with limited social skills. Mm. She has a son who is recognized as having exceptional potential, but who is trapped by the circumstances of his birth. His mother speaks with another man who offers to put forward money to free the son if the mother will agree to remain behind in slavery. She agrees, and the son goes off to find his destiny as a scion of an important foreign hierarchy, starting with a guide bringing him to a court to be introduced and inducted into an elite society of warriors. His mother remains behind and later enters into marriage with a man who is imperfect, but better than the man who originally owned her. All right. Am I describing the life of Melkorka and Olaf or Shmi and Anakin Skywalker? <laughs> you son of a bitch. I'm in. <laughs> I mean, it all tracks. Okay. So the question is, are we <laughs> what are we dealing would, would, with here? Would this would this saga be livened up by a a pod race, for example? <laughs> no. The answer is no. No. Uh, <laughs> you'd be better off asking whether the Phantom Menace would be improved by a violent standoff with Irish warriors. <laughs> the answer yes. would be yes, yes, by the way. <laughs> yes, it would be. Yeah. Okay. So instead of offering super original hot takes about the flaws of the prequels, let's uh, <laughs> let's grant that there are a ton of similarities here. Uh, but you're not accusing George Lucas of ripping off Lax Style Saga. I don't think so anyway. You, you're you really talking about the hero's journey. You're yes. talking about these motifs, right? Mm-hmm. So not that we couldn't, you know, cheerfully carry on dissecting the prequels, but uh, that is a different podcast that I'm not interested yep. in being involved in. Yep. Yeah. A couple of middle-aged white guys talking about Star Wars. Uh, I am well, pretty sure that's already several podcasts. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Melkorka's story, and we dove into her narrative a couple of episodes ago, so we already know that that corresponds to a motif of Irish princess stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if, I'm starting to wonder here if you've really summoned Olaf. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get to we'll get okay. to it. What do you think? I'm summonsing right, I'm, 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 Anakin Skywalker? No, no. You're, just, you're kind of more summonsing the, 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 the story itself. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Is that all right? But uh, anyway, yeah, this this episode 
takes that whole thing of the Irish princess story, that motif, in somewhat unexpected directions, right? We said earlier that it's unusual for these sagas to sustain interest in the Irish family connections, let alone send a protagonist to Ireland to look up his mother's family and then leave his nurse, her nurse on the, on the shore. <laughs> right. Uh, but that story happens because we're shifting over to Olaf's narrative now. And he's yeah. about the purest form of the monomyth I can think of in the sagas. Hmm. Not the only one, obviously, just the most straightforward one. Yeah, I mean, I, I could argue that a lot of the warrior poets um, fit that, that hmm. type yeah. really nicely, right? But um, yeah, I, I would actually, I would say that clear hero's journey type narratives, they're, they're not that common in the sagas outside of the, uh, the warrior yeah. poets. Yeah, uh, well, one of the critiques of the Campbellian model, uh, the hero's journey model, is that it's less universal than many scholars and teachers like to pretend it is. Uh, and there are several really worthwhile responses to Campbell's model, by the way, that are worth thinking about in their own right. Uh, Pearson and Pope's female hero model, uh, Jewett and Lawrence's American heroic archetype, uh, and so on. Yeah, we could do an episode on those just using examples from the sagas, I think. Yes. Uh, especially the American archetype, which obviously didn't start with America, mm-hmm. but uh, has similar kind of uh, cultural touchstones. I think. Absolutely. Um but anyway, we, we often talk about the sagas as living somewhere in the continuum of stories that include westerns and mob movies. And those are both American genres that build on pre-existing narrative types. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, it is pretty fashionable to dismiss the monomyth these days. But I, I think that's a mm-hmm. disservice to students and to readers in general. Right? There's a lot to learn from the monomyth and especially from the feedback loop that it creates. Mm, the feedback loop. Um, you mean between the author and the audience, I guess? Exactly, yeah. Uh, An audience buys into a narrative because of its familiar contours, but also becomes more sophisticated about those stories. They begin Mm -hmm. to anticipate the story. There's a satisfaction to that, but it also brings the danger of a story becoming tedious. Yeah, so the author has to begin playing with the narrative structure. Mm -hmm. So to introduce new twists, new variations on that theme, or even to subvert the expected structure, thus kind of uh, playing with the genre itself. Right. I mean, we can look at uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. Martin for that, right? Uh, Tolkien's influence on fantasy was so great that by the 1980s, I could go back and map characters in most of those novels directly onto figures from Lord of the Rings. It Mm -hmm. became predictable. Uh, Stories like the Dragonlance Chronicles or or the Shannara books or the Belgariad or any number of other stories were all telling versions of the same narrative. Isn't that Wheel of Time? The Wheel of Time was Mm -hmm. uh, written to exactly map onto Lord of the Rings in mm-hmm. in pretty obvious ways so that readers would be comfortable. And then they started to play, he starts to play with it as the narrative right. progresses right. Um, in order to do exactly what we're talking about here. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, th- th- all that stuff, th- it's usually quite good. Um, but yes, they were treading the same path, often quite literally and mm-hmm. on purpose. Um, those stories tended to be quest narratives, very much on the model of the hero's journey. And a lot of Dungeons and Dragons adventures grow out of that same kind of that Absolutely. same kind of structure. Absolutely. Uh, so authors like George R. R. Martin or, or Joe Abercrombie uh, try to upend that by creating morally ambiguous worlds in which there is no one evil to fight. Right, no one path to walk. Right, and in doing that, they challenge readers to alter their expectations of the narrative. Right, mm-hmm. the cycle begins again with audiences developing new assumptions and spotting new patterns, and and right. so we see. Yeah. Right, and then Go another ahead. disruption happens. Right, with um, science fiction and fantasy writers like Becky Chambers or Andy Weir or Micaiah Johnson or even Terry Pratchett, who wrote alongside the earlier stuff, but anticipates a lot of what's happening now. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a genre that people are starting to call hope punk. 
uh, or to follow a different disruption. You get writers like N.K. Jemisin or Rebecca Roanhorse who are exploring speculative fiction that becomes less about amoral voyeurism and returns fiction to its role as kind of an unflattering mirror for the world we live in. Mm, okay, well, hold up now. Uh, you're veering into tangential lecture territory, and I believe you summoned <laughs> Olaf and Anakin. Uh, remember Olaf and Anakin? Sorry, I, I've been on sabbatical, and my, my brain keeps itching to get back to teaching. Uh, Olaf, yeah, yes. Getting, okay, yes. go ahead. Uh, go ahead. What, we, what we get with Olaf is a pretty straightforward monomyth journey. Um, I mean, you know the monomyth as well as I do. Do you want to take, it, just take us through it or should I? I mean, I, I could do it. I, I'm not a big fan of teaching the monomyth. Uh, I almost never do it. But um, well, I You and I have argued about this before. You, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but Olaf, he does receive that call to adventure from his mother, uh, who also serves as his helper and guide in the early stages of the thing. Mm-hmm. He then leaves Iceland, crossing a threshold that he's never crossed before. He travels a long and indirect path, including a stop in Norway where he faces trials and a potential seducer. He has a difficult sea voyage and a challenge from hostile forces. And then he confronts a father figure in Murkjartan mm-hmm. and comes to a sort of reconciliation with him. Finally, he, he gains the prize of recognition into the Irish royal family, overcomes a temptation to stay in Ireland, and returns home along the path that he traveled on his way out. Much easier this time. And finally, he brings his mother news of their family and the love of her ancient nurse. Yep. That, Is that good? pretty much does it. There you go. Fits well. Uh, but it's also pretty close to a standard epic-style buildings roman, a mm-hmm. coming-of-age story. Well, that's that's part of the point I'm making. Right? Olaf is mm-hmm. a generic hero. I don't mean boring. Yeah. He's definitely not that. I mean that he conforms to genre. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the saga epitome of a young man out to win his honor and his reputation through a quest. Yeah. Uh, that much is standard saga story material, but it's unusual to have a narrative of that kind that ticks so many of the boxes for the mythic hero. Hmm. So Olaf is, what are you, are you, are you suggesting that he's mythic in no, nature? No, I, I mean, all saga narratives are semi-mythic. So yeah, a little, okay. uh, but I'm saying that because he's so built into that hero-shaped hole in the narrative, it becomes a useful way to think about the rest of the saga. This is an author. We already said this. This is an author who's interested in emotional states and responses. There's a short drive from there to moral and ethical states. We've talked about Haskell's incompetence in dealing with other people, his hostility to his younger half-brother, Hrut. Uh, Olaf is turning out to be more of a Hrut type, uh, but even more cut from the heroic mold. Mm-hmm. And Olaf's half-brother, Thorlik, has already been described in the saga as a hard man to get along with. I mean, this is something that I was hoping to shoehorn in at some point. One of the patterns in this saga is the relationship between a difficult man and his more amiable brother. Mm. One creates trouble, the other tries to resolve it. Well, that's a pattern from a lot of sagas. A lot, yes. Uh, But it's really pronounced and repeated here uh, to great purpose. Mm -hmm. That pattern shows up a third time consecutively in The Next Generation, although it gets a little more muddled. Olaf's son and his foster brother are going to eventually take up this mantle of the brothers in conflict, but it's much harder to establish who's the morally upright or heroic one in that pair. Of course. We'll look at that next episode. Right, right. And so the hero's journey becomes a way of identifying the hero figure. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, but it's also in the third generation, it's partly because uh, things get muddled because Gudrun, Oswald's daughter, enters the narrative as well and has yeah. at least as much of a claim to the role of heroic protagonist as either one of the Foster brothers do. 
Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, we haven't even gotten to Guthrie yet. It's crazy. Um, but the result of all that muddling is that where Hrut is able to manage his conflict with Hoskold and Olaf more or less manages to handle Thorlik, we're heading for a generation when no one successfully takes up the Peacekeeper's mantle, mm. and so tragedy results. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of boon, isn't it? Uh, the desire yeah. for peace is associated with the heroic figures in this saga. Mm-hmm. That's the prize they come back with, the ability to find a path to peace. It's part of the mastery of themselves and their surroundings. And Olaf yeah. is sort of the pinnacle of that heroic impulse in this story. As we'll see, his new wife, Thorgerth, is going to be his equal in a lot of ways, but she'll eventually show a much more morally complex side, uh, one that will move her into the next generation's narrative. And the tragic flaw of that next generation will be a failure to live up to those impulses. Mm -hmm. No one is the mythic hero archetype, and so they act in more human ways to provocation. Right, which means that Olaf kind of marks the moral high water point in our story. Hmm, Interesting. So you've summoned Olaf. You've connected him to Anakin in Mm -hmm. a strange but weirdly accurate (laughs) way. I'm shocked by that. Um, And... While I argued that you aren't really summonsing Olaf, in a way, <laughs> in in order to understand Olaf as character in the story, we need to understand these mythic prototypes. Yes. Uh, the the monomyth and all that jazz that we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. Well, John, thank you for that. I, 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 I'm buying a little bit of that. Hooray! I'll just take a piece. Mm-hmm. All right. So... Um, enjoy Olaf and his boy scoutery while you can, because uh, this roller coaster is heading for a big drop once he's gone. I think that's <laughs> yeah. what we've indicated here. <laughs> All right. Anything else we need to do? Uh, not for now. Uh, there's a lot more we can okay. say about Olaf, but we're not done with him and Thorgerth in this story yet. Okay. So if we are done with Olaf and the summons, uh, then we can catch up on our rune set questions. Do you want to oh, do right. that for yeah. a minute? We, we skipped the rune yeah. set last time because the episode was getting too long. Yeah, I wonder how long this episode is. Uh, <laughs> it feels like it's it's yeah, not quite as long. This episode is but, getting uh, long too. But uh, yeah, we can do a quick one. Okay. What was the what was the question okay. again? Uh, the question came from Allison on Gmail. Hey there, Allison. And she writes to the esteemed scalds and thingmen of Saga Thing. Oh my! A strange stick was found washed ashore on the beach, bearing the strange incisions of the writing of the Irish in a Pictish style. I'm given to understand that the following is an accurate translation. In the judgment section, this is the this is what was written on the stick apparently. Um, <laughs> a big stick. In the judge, right? In the judgment section for Cormac Saga, you talked a little bit about the Scottish giant. And while giants don't appear in the the Toynbokuli, and only once in the Mamanogian, giants are a common feature in Celtic mythology. In Scotland in particular, some pre-Christian legends say that Scotland was created by a giantess. The Celtic connections may also be represented in the name of Cormacker himself, as is as it is a common Irish name with an interesting meaning, son of the chariot, or son of defilement or corruption. Is it possible that Cormac had an Irish ancestress? <laughs> Do the skalds and Golar of the thing have an answer for a stick so earnestly entrusted to Agir? <laughs> Sounds more like a a large log entrusted to Agar. <laughs> I was going to say, that's uh, a lot of carving that went into yeah, that stick. It's a, so it's a strange stick. Huh? I got to say, I like Allison's approach to this question. Oh, I mean, Allison went all in on her approach here. She didn't just uh, set up the conceit of a rune stick scratched out in Ulm. Uh, 
she actually wrote out the ohm and sent it to us. Are you serious? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I am. As you, that's on notebook paper. Uh, he, she took a picture of it and sent it to us. Said, hey, let me show you. Uh, oh there you go. God. Look at all of that. Oh, that is true commitment to the bit. Well done, Allison. I mean, it is, right? Uh, okay, so and now... Remarkably now, good Ogham handwriting. Uh-huh. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Um, <laughs> so uh, now, given that she's responding to the judgment section from Cormac's saga, it could be a good long while before she hears this. Um, I don't even know if your uh, second son was born back when Cormac... We were doing Cormac's saga. <laughs> but uh, it's right I, around I feel there, confident... I I feel confident she's going to hear this eventually. Sure. Okay. Okay, so the question kind of has two parts. Uh, the first one is really about the Celtic connection in saga writing, and I think I can cover yeah. this one pretty quickly. Uh, Allison, Great. if you'd like to know more about Celtic influences on the sagas, uh, you can listen to our previous episode, where which you probably did before this one, where we addressed <laughs> this very topic in our summons of Melkorka. Yeah. Uh, the short of it is that tracing the direct influence of one culture or literary tradition to another is notoriously difficult. Um, the This is why there's an entire field of comparative literature that deals with this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subject of Celtic influences on saga literature has attracted the attention of scholars, but there's nothing definitive that suggests that the saga authors were drawing on a specific Irish literary tradition. That's right, yeah. Now, one of the biggest problems here is determining whether the parallels you see across cultures are the result of direct influence or the result of a common tradition that can be traced back to, say, a shared Indo-European culture. So you're right that giants figure prominently in both Celtic and Norse literature, but they're also found in the Greco-Roman tradition, in the writings of the Abrahamic religions, and all over the place. So can we say with any certainty that the giants of Old Norse literature are connected in some way to the giants of Celtic literature? Yes, I think we can. But the exact line from one to the other, it's its so difficult to trace. Yeah, and yet, I think it's fair to say that interactions between the Celtic people of the British Isles and the Scandinavians of the early Middle Ages do allow for a high probability of cross-pollination. Mm-hmm, we may not have definitely. to go back thousands of years to find the link. Uh, there's far too many parallel motifs and linguistic influences in those literary traditions. Right? It suggests that the two cultures uh, were indeed affecting each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we could go on and on about this, but uh, and we could do a saga brief about it. But uh, we you know, could I indeed. Think, I think it might be better at this point if we just point out to everyone a few good articles on the subject. Um, I'm going to say a good starting point is Peter Robinson's Vikings and Celts, which is available for free through the Viking Society for Northern Research website. Um, he addresses mm-hmm. a lot of those parallel motifs and even touches on the many Irish names like Cormac and Njal and Kjartan that appear in the sagas. Great. Uh, and even though you suggested that we suggest articles, I'm going to recommend Gisli Sergethson's book, uh, Gaelic Influences in Icelandic, uh, Historical and Literary Contacts. It's mm, that's great, yeah. not as quite as accessible as a free article, but it contains a lot of information on the subject and resources for finding more. Yeah, that is, that's a good one, actually. Um, and it is uh, very accessible. Um, you can find it on academia.edu for free. Can you? Yes. That's excellent. Yes. Uh, okay, then I assume you'll post links to both titles in the show notes. This time without any snark, I will. <laughs> of course. Uh, and now what about Allison's second question? The one about Cormac's ancestry. Right. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about the most prominent Irish named characters in the sagas is that 
the sagas tend to either obscure the genealogies or to establish a clear Norwegian ancestry for them. So mm -hmm. Cormac, for example, is named for his grandfather, Cormac, who was a hairseer from Norway who fought with King Harald Fairhair in the 9th century. Right. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Grandpa Cormac wasn't of Irish stock, though. No, I mean, he could be. Um, it's unclear. Uh, if he is, the saga author clearly doesn't care to draw attention to it at all. Um, and the same thing is true of Njal, for example. Uh, it would make sense, given his very Irish name, that he would have some relatively recent Irish ancestry. All we get are the names, though. Njal is the son of Thorgeir, who was the son of Thorolf, and his mother's name was Asgerd. Not very right. Uh, Irish. Right. Now, we could read into that and say that the saga authors are deliberately trying to obscure the influence of Irish settlers in Iceland, but mm. I mean, that would just be speculation. Yeah. Um, right. It's uh, also completely possible that by the time saga authors are writing in the 13th century, those names may not be recognized any longer as distinctly Irish. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, Peter Robinson, who wrote the article Vikings and Celts I mentioned, uh, he draws that same conclusion. I'm not sure that I buy it completely, since I think most sagas, whether consciously or subconsciously, they have a social and political agenda underlying what they're doing. But I can see the potential in what he's saying. because well, And some of the sagas, Andy, do actually make that connection more clear. Uh, mm -hmm. In this saga, when uh, Thorgerth and Olaf have a son and name him Kjartan, which is going to be coming up, they do mm -hmm. specifically say that he's named for his, his great-grandfather, Mirkyarton, the king of the Irish, right? So they are directly connecting that name back to an Irish source. Right, but this saga has a, an agenda drawing right, exactly. those connections well, to that, Irish royalty. Yeah. Exactly, I'm supporting your point there. Yeah, exactly. But um, this is one of the only ones that does that kind of thing. Everywhere else, it's always obscured. Um, but, you know, what I think is interesting about what Peter Robinson is writing uh, about the, the name situation is that by the time you get to the 13th and 14th century, names are no longer recognized as distinctly Irish, like you said. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that there's some, some truth to that because I don't think of my name, Andrew, as a Greek name, uh, nor do I think hmm, of its true. entry into Western culture through the Christian tradition. Uh, when I hear my name, I don't think of either of those things. It's just a name people have these days. It's my name. Um, sure, it has a history, but I know that my parents weren't tapping into that history when they named me. Well, how do you know? Do you know why you were named Andrew? I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm named after my father's grandfather, Andrew okay. Kormus. He was born in Slovakia in 1893, moved to Cleveland, Ohio as a young man, married a lovely woman named Veronica Fedor. And uh, yeah, my father had very fond memories of Andrew, like uh, sitting on the porch and watching storms come in. Um, so that's why I'm named after him. You know, what about you? Where's John come from? Uh, well, I mean, John is one of the most popular names in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, so it comes from everywhere, really. But uh, in my case, both of my grandfathers were named John. Uh, mm. So as the firstborn child of my parents, it was a pretty easy choice to make, right? They didn't have to pick <laughs> right, a family yeah. to honor. They could just name me John and have both of the grandfathers represented. Uh, so they yeah. never specifically said who I was named after. Because it was better just to leave it sort of ambiguous <laughs> and named after your named grandfather. after both of my grandfathers. Yeah, my father yeah. also had a brother and has a brother named John. Uh, Interesting. And so I'm, I'm sort of named after every male in my father's family who isn't him and then my mother's <laughs> father. Yeah. That's interesting. But, you know, both of my grandfathers were named Edward. Um, really? So oh, interesting. I guess th there were only a handful of names. You know, people complain about the sagas right. reusing the same names over and over There were again. only about six names for men. <laughs> That's right. You had your Edward, you had your Johns, you had your Andrews, you had your Williams, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but well, since we talked about uh, my great grandfather, I'm going to include a picture of him in the show notes too, just so everyone can appreciate mm-hmm. uh, that history. Uh, do you have any pictures of your grandfathers? Uh, I mean, I do, but uh, we haven't mentioned this, but I'm actually traveling at the moment. I'm in Wisconsin visiting oh, my wife's family, true. so I don't actually have access to those pictures right now. Uh, okay. So maybe we'll have to sort of put them back up after the episode goes up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, once I get back home and have, I can find the yeah, pictures. Yeah, we can. Yeah, I can definitely put them in the show notes after yep. you get home and send them to me. But that would be, uh, you know, since we talked about them, why not throw them in there? So Everyone can see the stock that we come from. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that rune stick, Allison. It was uh, a fun conversation and an unexpected trip into our own family histories. So thank you for that. Okay. Uh, that's got to do it for this time. Uh, yeah. This is another long episode. Sorry yeah, about that. Here we go again. Uh, we'll be back soon with the next chapters in our saga. But in the meantime, if you do want to get in touch with us to tell us what you think about this episode, please do. Andy, mm-hmm. how do they do? They do this. They they write <laughs> an email to sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or maybe stop by our Facebook page where we are Sagathing Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter where we are Sagathing Pod and why not go to our WordPress blog, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, where you can leave a message there. And if that's not enough for you, then just go on over to our Discord page, which is rapidly going from unofficially official to being the best way to get in touch with us. There's lots of good conversations and creative projects going on there. It's a nice mm-hmm. little community of great people. So Absolutely. that's and, uh, uh, you know a good place to go. And if none of those work out, have Allison inscribe your message on a stick in autumn. Uh, it worked for her. It can work for you. Yes. All right. Well, we will be back soon. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting these sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm scrolling. And I'm Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was I had scrolled down to the uh, the other part. That's the opening I like. Get that really, yeah. really, uh really dissipate that energy right at the beginning. <laughs> it's time for you to go to Ireland and look up our family there. I, that's pretty much the same as what I was just what doing. What is this voice it? you're doing? It's, it's an Irish woman. You know, not every woman speaks at the top of her voice. <laughs> Sometimes women can have really the, the deep alto voices, even high tenors. Okay, let me let me try that. <laughs> it's time for you to go to Ireland <laughs> and look up our family there. Oh, dear. Something like that? Yeah, like Liam Neeson, yeah. <laughs> Your grandfather has a certain set of skills. If you give us... Oh, I'm going to be a nasty Irishman now. Okay. Maybe an Irishman whose testicles have descended. <laughs> you don't have to give him an accent, by the way. Oh, but I do. All right. <laughs>